Well, we're continuing on in the book of Luke. We've been journeying through the book of Luke for quite some time now. And last Sunday in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, You've got to so believe this that you would die for me. And then just a few days later, many did as this gunman in Oregon shot in the head those people who proclaimed to be Christian. And so in just a matter of three days, we move from hypothetically speaking to practically speaking. And so let that set the the tone for every time we gather like this, that we're not just talking spiritual, in the sky, philosophical concepts. We're talking about stuff that impacts our every single day life. And we're there again today. And so Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. If if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and get on over there. You can scroll there on your phone. We'll have it up on the, the screen here for you. Luke chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible of your very own, around the room we've got Bibles. And in the back we've got Bibles. We would love for you to have a Bible. So grab one on your way out. That's our gift to you. But Luke chapter 15 is where we're going Uh, to be. Uh, Just a few years ago, uh, we ran this ad at the train station uh, down at Forest Hills. Uh, It says, for different people from different places in different seasons, we are here to serve you. And to be honest, at the time, it was more of a visionary ad than a reality ad. You know what I mean? It's kind of what we want to be, but not quite who we are Yet it was who God was, was calling us to be. He was calling us to be a, a diverse church. And so we set our hearts to spend a year as a church family to pray for that, to reflect our neighborhood and, and display the beauty and the unifying power of the gospel that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 where that dividing wall of hostility crumbles down and we become one new race. And we were praying through that and God has done that. It's just been amazing to see how God has done that for us as a church family, ethnically, culturally, uh, generationally, socioeconomically. We were becoming a diverse church and we praise God for that. You together as a family are a better presentation of the gospel than the most articulate piece of literature somebody could hand out beside the J-dubs at Downtown Crossing. I mean, you are the best gospel track out there. And we praise God for that. And I love what God is doing. But there's, there's one more element of diversity that really hasn't been spoken about much around here. And that is our spiritual diversity. Our spiritual diversity. In other words, what I mean is, is our spiritual background. Or for some of us, lack thereof. Is, is very, very, very diverse as I look around the room and I just kind of reflect on, on your different stories. Listen, there is no type of person who becomes a Christian. There is no type of person. We're not talking about minivan people here, right? We're not talking about suburbanites with two and a half kids, you know, who play youth sports. We're not talking about the typical person who gets a minivan. We're talking about Christians, and there is no type of person that becomes a Christian. There is no Typical, the kingdom of God is this beautifully diverse in every way kind of people who gather together under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Diversity. And that diversity also includes diverse spiritual backgrounds. And some people were religious, let's say. 
when they came to Jesus. They had this background of being concerned with the, the do's and the, the don'ts and, and they had hopes that in, in so doing the do's and not doing the, the, the don'ts and jumping through all the different hoops that it would somehow buy them favor with God. But then they heard the news that Jesus Christ himself was, was God and he lived perfectly in our shoes and that if we trust in his life, his performance, not our lives, not our performance. We don't have to walk around hoping anymore, but we can have this thing called certainty. I always ask somebody, how good is good enough? We don't have to kind of do this scale thing any longer. So some of us were religious when we came to Jesus. Some of us were, were most definitely not religious when we came to Jesus, but we were spiritual Anybody in here, you were, you were spiritual, you didn't maybe believe in God, but you had this kind of a awareness of the spiritual realm out there. You were interested in the fact that there, there must be some kind of force out there. There's this connectedness among people or, or karma. You maybe see that thing happening. And, and, and then you heard about Jesus and you realize, I was on to something. There, there is some kind of force out there. He's a sovereign God who upholds the universe by the word of his power and he can be known and it just rocked your world. And I look around and I see people, that was your story. You were very spiritual. And so some were religious and some were spiritual when they came to Jesus and then others were what we might call secular. You believe that there was and is no God. There is no Force. There's only the reality that we can see and we can touch with our own two hands until something or, or, or someone started to stir up something in your hearts and you couldn't deny him any longer. So you have religious and spiritual and secular and we look around and we've got people coming from all those kind of broad categories and then among those categories, there's, there's different types of, of people within those categories. There are the religious winners, the religious losers, and the religious hopefuls as, as well. So the winners, they feel pretty good. I, you know, I, I think God is pleased with me. I've done, I've done a good job. The, the losers, they, they know they didn't do so well. My life is, if we were on the scale, it's not good. And I think God is probably mad at me. And then there's the hopefuls. Which is most, I don't know, I, I guess, I hope, I hope so. I hope I, I've been good enough. And then among the spiritual, I think there's the intentional spiritual and there's the unintentional spiritual. The, the intentional spiritual, they, they believe that there's a force and they're pursuing the, their force or they're seeking to appease it. They're seeking to live good lives. They're seeking to swing karma in their direction. And then the unintentional spiritual, maybe are the people who think, you know what, there, there's something out there, but I don't know. I mean, who knows? And then there's the, the, the secular, and they come from, we could just go on and on and on and on, all kinds of different backgrounds. Some people are secular because of science. Some people are secular because they had a really hard life, and they're just not buying that a good God could actually be out there and let this kind of stuff happen to me. Some people are, are secular because, uh, you know, I just, I can't buy it. I just, it, it seems like unicorns we're chasing here, and so I'm not, I'm not going to buy that. And then there's, some people are secular in that they're the, the angry atheist, you met him or her? Or there's the, the happy atheist, or there's the agnostic or the indifferent, I don't care really, or anywhere else in be, between. And, and by the grace of God, we've had 
the privilege not just to interact with people who are diverse socioeconomically or generationally in their age or, or culturally or even uh, ethnically. We've had the opportunity to interact with people who are diverse in their, their spiritual backgrounds. We've seen many of them come to know Jesus from religious to spiritual to secular, from happy to hurting to, to hateful. This, this spectrum of, of people. And it's amazing to see what God has done and is doing in their lives as they grow in, in faith. And I love how we see God using each of their life circumstances and their backgrounds for his purpose. That your background, God has allowed you to go through some stuff so that you can serve and care for and relate with people that I can't relate with. It's an, an amazing, beautiful thing that God has done. He's created this mosaic of backgrounds, as tough as they may be, and as fractured pieces of glass that you might feel like but when you put it all together God is making this beautiful mosaic this beautiful work of art one that's not predictable you know what I mean it's it's pretty pretty cool what God is doing and and when you hear Jesus teaching throughout the New Testament frequently you will see him talking in front of a spectrum of backgrounds and yet somehow it's so incredible and I just envy that I just want that is when he talks to people when he speaks to people, as diverse as they may be, it seems like what he says to them just hits them in very pointed kinds of ways and, and, and very personal levels. And, and today's passage is no different in Luke chapter 15. And so look with me at verses 1 and 2 for starters here. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. All right, now Jesus is about to to preach here. And and we open up from Luke hearing the different types of people that are gathering. A very diverse group of people in terms of their backgrounds. We've got the tax collectors. We've got the sinners. We've got the Pharisees. We've got the the scribes. and, And whenever you read the Bible... It's very important to, to make sure you understand the context around what you're, you're reading. Otherwise, we can start to read things and apply them in ways that they weren't meant to ever be uh, applied. So always make sure that you know what's happening and what you're reading. Always make sure that you know who the original audience of the scriptures, uh, who Jesus is speaking to, who they are. And they are tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. You just can't miss that the way uh, Luke lays it out for us here. Now, as you track throughout the ministry of Jesus... You could just easily go through and just do case studies on these types of people. There's Levi, tax collector. There's Mary Magdalene, definitely a sinner. There's Nicodemus, Pharisee. And you could just go on through the scriptures. You can go into the, the ministry of Paul and see these, these kinds of people as well. And they've all just been deeply impacted by the ministry of Jesus from very diverse backgrounds. Because, as I said earlier, there is no type of person who becomes a Christian. There's no standard type of person who becomes a Christian. And when you get this, it changes some things in your thinking and in your action. Let me tell you about these people that he's speaking to here. We first have the the tax collector. These are Jewish people who took a pretty shady job collecting taxes for Rome. They were uh, the world power of the day, Rome, and they were occupying Israel, and they were all over the, the globe, the known globe at that point. And, and here's the thing. 
we think about Rome, and we think about some of their cultural things that we've seen in movies, and we think, wow, that is kind of cool, and that is kind of cute. But Rome was terrible. It was more horrific than you can possibly imagine. Lining streets with hundreds of thousands of people hanging and dying shameful deaths, naked on the cross. You see it, parents, and your children see it as well. You can't shelter them from that like we could turn off a TV or put on an internet filter. It's right there in front of them, scaring people into submission. And tax collectors, these were people who were of the country that Rome was occupying, the various countries. And in this case, these tax collectors are, are people from Israel. They are Jewish people, and yet they sold out. They sold out their own family and their, their countrymen and took this job receiving weapons and receiving money and receiving food and receiving supplies and an outpost so that they could collect money to fund the killing of their loved ones and their countrymen. Those are tax collectors. And yet verse 1 says that they're drawing near to Jesus. They felt welcomed with Jesus. We read on, there's, there's sinners. And this is not the way we use the word sinners today. We kind of all have, if you've grown up in and around the church, we're all sinners. We're all sinful. This is a specific class of people in the eyes of the Jews. These are people who are doing terrible things like prostitution, slave trading, tax collecting. It was this class, the sinner class. And it also included in their thinking in that day and age people who had physical handicaps and diseases because most Jews explain handicap and disease by saying that this was God's curse. This was God's punishment on these people. That's why they are the way they are. God must be punishing them. We do not agree with that, but that was the cultural norm of that day. What have they done wrong? Remember the time when the Pharisees dragged the guy and they say, look Jesus, who sent him or his parents? Jesus said, nobody, what are you talking about? And that was the thinking of the day. And yet, these people who are part of the sinner class, it says they're drawing near to Jesus. They felt welcomed around Jesus, which is amazing because everything in that culture said, you are not welcomed. God hates you. You are worthless. And if God is pursuing you, it's to show his judgment on you, to punish you, to kill you. And Jesus is saying, I am God in the flesh and I am here with a message of hope even for you. And they're drawing near. The sinner class wasn't even allowed in the, the synagogue. So they never got to hear the scriptures of their day read. They were not allowed to make sacrifices for their sin, to atone for their sin. And so it was just piling up their sin just kept piling up and piling up and piling up and it couldn't be paid for. It just couldn't be paid for. And yet some reason they felt welcome with, with Jesus. And some of you need to hear that today. It doesn't matter how far you've gone, how bad you are. It doesn't matter the shame that you're feeling, the secret stuff that you know about but nobody else knows about. And you feel like you're constantly on guard, kind of making sure nobody gets into those crannies of your your, your life, and you maybe say even, I'm not that type of person. I don't know how I'm here, but I'm not the type of person that God would like. I don't match up. And the problem with that is the Bible. That God has loaded the Bible with not these perfect people to say, be like them, aspire to be them. They're amazing. 
the Bible is loaded with a bunch of losers, right? A bunch of people who've made some serious mistakes and somehow God has done amazing things in them and then he turns it and does amazing things through them. Just all kinds of characters. And I bet we could take your story and my story and we could find you a buddy in the Bible. Your Bible buddy. We should make a little group. Bible buddies. It'll be cheesy, but who cares? Let's embrace it, right? And you could have somebody that you could say, I relate with. So we've got these tax collectors. We've got these sinners. And then we hear about these Pharisees and these scribes. These people who knew the Bible at the back of their hand. They knew it incredibly well. It was very impressive how these people knew the Bible. And they became very good at obeying the Bible. And once they mastered that, they said, let's add more rules and just show off how amazing we are. And they could just obey the Old Testament and even more. And as a result, they were certain that God owed him his favor. They were were certain that God owes us and he loves us like he can love nobody else. We're the only people who really deserve it. They were the church folk, you know what I mean? They were the people wearing the, the Christian t-shirts and, and yet they're, they're grumbling. And yet Jesus is letting even them get close. He's letting even them get close. Close enough that they can see what's going on and they can be angry and they can grumble. Now, when Jesus sees their attitude that they're caring and they're upset with what Jesus is doing and allowing the sinful class and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the slave traders and all these wretched people come near. He sees how it sets off the Pharisees and and the scribes and just makes him flame and angry. And Jesus does kind of this machine gun parable thing on them. Just pop, pop, pop. Just parable after parable after parable uh, with little explanation between each of these parables. And he's just delivering this massive blow to the idea that there's a type of person that he's after. And so read with me now as we get into the parable. Uh, Verses 3 through 7. It says, so he told them this parable. Here's his first blow. What man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance this is one of the most rich and most developed illustrations in the scripture the idea of God as our shepherd the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not one he tells us about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep that's that's pretty pretty good you're doing pretty well for yourself he doesn't have a couple to get some feta cheese out of you know and some nice nice coat out of every now and again he's got a hundred He's making money off of these guys. and do, he, This guy's doing all right, this, this shepherd. And, and yet Jesus in this, this parable, this made-up story to, to present the truth, he says this shepherd loses one of the 100. And he leaves the 99 vulnerable. And he goes after 
the lost one. It's kind of a big risk. These sheep could be attacked. They could wander them themselves. But the point isn't really that he, he, he left the 99. Don't read too much into parables. Let's get the basic truth out of parables. Some people try to dissect them too much. And that's not how you read a parable. But the, the point is the, the value of that one lost sheep that he goes after. The oddball. The, the outcast. The wanderer. The one who wanders from God is of tremendous value to, to Jesus. Maybe you need to hear that. You're of tremendous value to Jesus. And in Jesus' story, when the shepherd finds them, what does he do? Dumb sheep. What are you doing? No, does he do that? No, he grabs the sheep and he puts them up on his, his shoulders. And he, he, he carries them. He carries them. And he rejoices. When he gets back, what does he do? I love this picture. He calls his friends together and they have a sheep party. (laughs) You ever been to a sheep party? One time I got an invitation to a dog's birthday party. I didn't know what to do with it. People love their animals, but a sheep party has never happened. And in this genius parable, Jesus is directing this spectrum of people here. To the wanderer, to the one who is far from God. He's saying, listen, I have not given up on you. Some of you, when you wander from God, you get so far from God, you think, certainly now I've crossed the line. Certainly now I'm too far. He would never have me back. And he says, I have not given up on you. I value you. I know you think you should just run and forget. He says, no, no, I'm coming for you. And that's a whole other thing, isn't it? The fact that God is coming for you, aren't you glad that our salvation, our being made right with God is not contingent on us coming to God? Let that language in this parable inform your theology. He came after us. Because sheep are sheep. And without a shepherd leading them, they can't even feed themselves. If water is moving just, just a little bit, it's too fast for them. That's why the, the, the psalm says, I lead you beside still waters. Because it's too fast, they can't even drink. The shepherd has to feed them and pick bugs out of their wool and care for them. They cannot find their way back to God. God comes to them. It's an amazing, beautiful reality. A couple years ago, my family was playing outside. And my daughter at the time, I think, was about two years old and kind of bumbling around, you know. And uh, at the time, we had, for our fence, it wasn't a fence. It was just a bunch of shrubs. And you could kind of slither through it. And my daughter slithered through it. And I went to go get her. My wife said, hold on. You ever wondered what would happen if she just went? What would she do? (laughs) So he said, okay. So, of course, I didn't just say, see you later. I I crept behind trees and bushes and cars and and followed my daughter through the neighborhood. I really did. And just watched her. She went through the neighbor's yard behind us and down and down on the sidewalk and was walking along until suddenly she realized several blocks away, I'm lost. To which I jumped out. I didn't want to let her be scared. And I jumped out and said, here I am. And I, I, I grabbed her. I came out and, and I got her because she would not have been able to find herself back to me. I had to come and rescue her. And that's what Jesus does. He says, you can't work your way up to me. You can't be good enough. I descend to you and I, God, become a man. And I have been good enough. And so I have come on this rescue mission for you and under that example we too go and find the lost sheep under the example of Jesus we have to go and pursue the people who nobody else is pursuing like the children we saw in the video we've got to pursue them we've got to care for them 
It is our responsibility, Christians. Not our tax dollars handed off to our government in hopes that they will do something. That doesn't work, does it? God says, I've designed it such that the church, my people, would be about the nations and about the people that nobody else is going after. If those numbers don't stagger your heart, something should just click that something is off. So Jesus addresses the wanderer and he says, listen, sinful tax collectors, you might be feeling like God could not love me. God would leave me to die. And you're wrong. You might feel like you're too far gone. And you're wrong. Hear this. Even you today. Jesus is pursuing you. And if you're sitting in this room, it's because Jesus is pursuing you. If you're listening on podcasts, it's because you're, you're, you're being pursued by Jesus. You're not out there ignoring all. Jesus is pursuing you. And then in the same illustration, he doesn't just address the wanderer. He addresses the religious type. Those of us who think, you know what, I'm good. I've got this. I, I'm fine. In fact, Jesus, you've got 99 of us. Why do you need that one? And Jesus says, no, I'm not satisfied. I need, I need others. It's not just about you. They are more valuable than you could ever imagine. And so stop being full of yourself. And then Jesus says, verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I love that. He says there's rejoicing in heaven when one person, one person, no idea how many millions of people are in heaven in the presence of the Lord right now. He says, but when there's one added, there's rejoicing in heaven. And when he talks about the rejoicing in heaven, up to this point, the religious type thought, heaven is rejoicing over us. Every time we do something good, they are so proud of us. They think we are amazing. Heaven loves the 99 and the spiritual touchdowns that we are just accomplishing day in and day out. And Jesus says, no, heaven is excited over those people who are truly being saved, truly being rescued. Heaven is excited at that. That's shot number one. Now, shot number two. Here's another illustration that Jesus gives us to prove his point. Look at verse eight of chapter 15. Or what woman? I love that. So he's, he's bouncing from a man. Now he's... Got the woman in here. Now what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin. <laughs> Isn't that funny? We're going to have a coin party now. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you hear the parable? Do you hear the parallel in the parables? You ever lost something that's valuable to you? A lot of us can immediately identify that time we lost, whatever it was. I'll never forget as a newlywed, my wedding band didn't fit very snug on my finger. And uh, it was titanium, so you couldn't really size it down. It was just the cheapest thing us broke newlyweds could get. And so... I would take it off whenever I'd go swimming. And uh, we were out in central Massachusetts at uh, my friend's lake house. And we were out in the lake and we were wakeboarding. And 
And it's my turn, and so I took off my ring and took off my cap and wrapped it up and put it in the glove compartment of the boat. And I did my thing, just doing 360s and backflips. It was amazing. No, not at all. Uh, I was barely standing up. And, and I was going through, and, and I get back to the back of the boat, and I come up, and my hand, friend hands me a towel. And then my other buddy grabs out of the glove compartment my hat and goes, here you go, Josh. And it was slow motion in my mind, just still think about that day, just a zing. The coin just, or the, the ring just flipping through the air into the water. And I dove off in slow motion, David Hasselhoff style, while the, you know, into the water. And I remember just swimming, and I, could, I actually caught it in my eye. I saw it sinking, and I just was swimming deeper and deeper and deeper until it just kind of faded into the bottom of the lake. And it felt like Nemo's dad finding Nemo and just swimming and swimming until Nemo was just out of sight, you know. And it was a bummer. And I asked my buddy, I said, I think a metal detector? Get down there at the bottom of the lake. like, this thing is like 30 feet deep. It's not happening, man. This woman had 10 silver coins. And each coin would have been worth about a day's wage. She loses one. And she lights a lamp and sweeps and diligently rips up her house to find the one And many of us would say, come on, you got nine more, it's okay. Listen, for those days, ten coins was pretty good. One coin is a day's wage. It's not like today where you got your accounts and your retirement and and your credit cards. If you had ten days worth of wages backed up, you were doing pretty well for yourself. And so it's not a big deal to lose one. And yet she tears up the house to find the one coin. And again, Jesus is addressing both ends of the spectrum. For, for the religious person, they'd say, no worries, Jesus. You've got nine others. No worries, Jesus. You, you've got us. You can do a lot with nine coins, right? It's a lot of money. And in the church, I think people do this all the time. In the church, as a newer church, we're going to face that struggle. We're going to come up against that struggle. Is, is Usually churches will plateau and then eventually decline. When they say, we've got nine. Let's just focus on the nine. We've got a crowd. We don't need to focus on them anymore. Let's focus on shepherding us, on, on caring for us. Don't lose what you have. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. In fact, let me say this, church. The best thing that we can do for you to help you grow in your walk with the Lord is instill in you a passion for the lost. That's the best thing that we can do to make you grow. One of the first things we expect people in our church family to plug into is a serving role. Because that's the best way that you can grow because you start to get eyes off of self And you grow in in humility. You start to get eyes on the other people. And you see what God's doing in their life. And it's an amazing thing. You need to to serve. Think about when Jesus called people. When he calls his followers. He didn't call them some seminary master program. He called them to a missions program. He says, fishermen, drop your net. Stop. Come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. He said, I'm going to make you really fat sheep. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to go do something. You are going to be the the shepherds now. Follow me. So Jesus to the religious is saying, this idea that you've got enough in us, or I've got enough in in just you, no, it's not about 
just you. Get your eyes off of self. For the sinner, for the outcast, Jesus is saying, catch this. Jesus is saying, I will tear the house up for you. I don't know if you have that kind of picture of Jesus fighting for you. I know some of your stories and you'd say, nobody's ever fought for me. Nobody's ever frantically pursued me. Jesus has. He gave it all. He died, even death on the cross for you. And when the woman finds the coin, what does she do? Another party. Anybody ever lost your car keys? Then you go crazy looking for them. You know, just you always lose them right before you're about to go somewhere really important and you cannot be late for. And you just flipping everything upside down in the house. When you find your car keys, do you call your neighbors and say, Guess what, guys? We're having a car key party. I found them. This is so strange. A sheep party, a coin party. Yet we're calling this series Upside Down Kingdom because the kingdom of God causes you to look upside down. What is this? Is different. The kind of value that Jesus places on every single life is different than the world could possibly know. The world looks at some people and says, they're dispensable. And Jesus says, it's not how it works in my kingdom. It's not how it works in my kingdom. One last party. The third shot of his little machine gun at these prideful people. And in this parable, at least it's a party for a human this time. So that's good. Look with me in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and began And he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And the father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you hear that? 
It's not even his own brother. When this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted, fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now this is Jesus' probably most well-known parable the prodigal son even if you're not a christian if you've not been around the church you know about the concept of prodigals those who go astray they're they're wandering man has two sons the younger son decides i want my inheritance early it's as if he were saying dad you're dead to me just give me my portion now see you later brokenhearted the dad would be he gives the son everything that he has to to give him his his portion and now the kid is loaded and he takes off in this new convertible out to some other faraway country. But when he gets out there, he quickly blows all of his money on stupid stuff, sinful, crazy stuff. No more money, but he's got a lot of stuff. And then famine hits. And when the famine hits the, the country, he's now in trouble. Such trouble that in order to make some money, the guy finds himself as a Jewish boy feeding pigs. You see the problem with that? Not kosher. His income still wasn't cutting it. He was starving in the midst of this famine. He's so hungry that he's thinking, I'll just eat what the, the pigs eat. And he gets to thinking one day and he says, my dad's servants, his servants are better off than me. I'm so desperate that I'm going to just try my last shot here. Maybe. It's a risk. Probably not. But maybe. Just maybe if I go back to him, he'll forgive me and take me back as his servant. And so he, he goes back. It's a risk. Dad could say to him, you basically killed me off. Get out of here. But when he starts to work his way back to his home, we see that he gets in distance. Picture him coming over the horizon. And as he comes over the horizon dad sees him well, what does dad do beautiful moment rather than anger rather than hostility compassion compassion and joy now is that the reaction some of you are expecting from God if you're found out by God compassion and joy to see you returning to him and he runs and he embraces him. If you look at the original language, it's as if he grabs and falls on him. And just, it's amazing. And he kisses him. And then the son goes through his re rehearsed spiel there. And he says, uh, Dad, I, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. And I, I've sinned against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And Dad says, hold on. Servants, do me a favor. Go get him a robe. Go get him shoes. Go get him that, that ring. And then take that calf that we've been fattening up for turkey day or calf day. Take it and kill it because tonight we will party. My son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. Do you believe that God feels that way about you? You see how it changes how we approach God every time we sin? We can approach God with confidence that he longs to have you back. 
I don't wish this on any of you, but should you ever find yourself in a place where you're far from God, you're far from the church, because usually when people drift into sin, they drift away from the life of the church, please know that we will welcome you back with open arms. No gap, no distance. Well, you have crossed the line because that's the example that God has set for us. Parents, tell your kids that over and over and over and over again. I had this friend, I just never forget the time he told me his dad was a pastor. And and he said his dad was one of those really, really stringent kind of guys. Really kind of fundamentalist style church. And he said, one day I just made a big mistake and got completely trashed out of my mind. And he was this story. He said, I really had nowhere to go. I was alone and messed up bad. And I was horrified to go back to my father. He said, I went back to the house though. Kind of stumbled in and laid on the side of my bed. I thought for sure I was just going to get ripped into. And he said, his dad sat there with him all night long, holding the bowl as he puked his brains out and just loved his son and cared for his son. And never said anything else about it again. Because he didn't have to say anything. He just had to show. And it changes this guy's future, doesn't it? Just the fact that he welcomed me back. You don't have to say anything. I want to live my life to honor you now. That's how we are to be. God, I cannot believe that you've done this for me. That you've descended from the heights of heaven. To be one of us. To live in our shoes and to die on a cross for me, in my place, taking my sin on your shoulders. You don't have to say anything. I just want to follow you. It's incredible. You take me, me, me back. That's how God feels. That's how God feels about you. And he welcomes you back. Now, as we start to round third base, there's this one section of this that has just been really ringing in my heart this week and, and we've looked at this parable so many times as a church I kind of want to close by taking it in a different direction the older brother interesting huh comes home from working working doing exactly what he is supposed to do and in the distance he hears some bumping music you know the sound of a party down the road <laughs> he hears some bumping what is going on and he works his way back and a servant says, hey, what's going on? What is happening over there? He says, your brother has returned. He, he's back. And what happens with, with big brother? He's angry, isn't he? He refuses to go in. And because he refuses to go in, he moves from angry to hangry, right? Because he's not eating now. <laughs> You're hungry and angry. That's like a deadly combo. He's hanging outside the party. How is this fair? How is this right? I have done everything that I should have done as a son. He took my dad's money, treated him as good as dead, and comes back. And and now he's going to welcome him back? He's going to welcome him back? Yet he's forgetting one thing. And that is he himself had no say in becoming a son, did he? (laughs) You didn't earn your sonship. You were just a son. And this guy, he didn't earn his sonship, nor does he have to earn his sonship. He's always a son if he's a son. 
It was the the Lord's decision. It was the master's decision. It was your father's decision. Just like a sheep out in the wilderness cannot feed himself. Just like a coin can't hop out from under the sofa and say, ta-da, here I am, and and angle itself in such a way that it flickers off of the light and catches their eye. And ah, He had no say in being a, a son. He had thought he had earned it. He got it all mixed up. It's the spiritual chicken or the egg, right? You don't earn your sonship, but because you're a son and because you're grateful, then you obey. Then you do the things that you're supposed to do. He got it backwards. He said, I earned this. You didn't earn it. Be happy that he's come back into his role as a son. Be happy. Don't be so self-righteous and, and arrogant. And, and, and listen, here's, here's, here's where we need to go with this is so many of us, we hear this gospel drum beat all the time, and it should be, and we'll never stop. We'll never stop proclaiming the gospel, especially in high church New England, where so many people think you earn it, you do this, you go to that building that looks so beautiful and historic, and that'll get you right with God. And if you just live your whole life hoping, and if you're really good, then you can look down your arrogant, self-righteous nose at other people and say, look at me, I've earned it. And, and, and we, in this church, and, and so many others like us around this great city, we, we, we beat this gospel drum. Don't we want to be gospel-centered churches? But what we oftentimes will start to do is start to fail to extend grace to the people who are not extending grace to others. And now we're guilty of the exact same thing. And I love Verse 28, he was angry and he refused to go in. But his father came out and entreated him. The dad come out and say, son, you are being such a selfish punk. How self-righteous of you. What does dad do? He extends the same grace. He says, listen, you're being a brat right now. But he entreats him, please come in. I want you to in this party. I want you to enjoy the the party as well. Come on in. And this is where the tables get flipped for us. We love the grace of God. But don't forget that we too must extend grace to those who struggle to extend grace. We have to. The way we kill hate In this week where we've just seen lots of hate. The way we kill hate and pride is not with more hate and pride. The way we kill hate and pride is with grace and love. We have to keep extending grace even to the people who refuse to extend grace. In the kingdom of God, there is room for everyone. And when we say everyone, we mean everyone. From the down and out to the prideful and self-righteous and arrogant and everybody in between. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. There's room for everyone. There really is no type of person who becomes a Christian. Everyone on the spectrum. I guess the only thing that we could say as to the type of person who becomes a Christian is the humble person. The person who eventually comes to a place where they say, 
you've got something to offer me, God, that I just can't earn, I can't do. And so, yes, I humbly put my hands out and say, yes, I'll receive that. It is our desire that every single person in New England come to know Jesus. That's our desire. That's what we're after as a church. But They have to humbly receive the extended hand of the shepherd who's come out and said, come on. I'm going to put you on my shoulders. We're going back. I got a party for you. You've got to receive it. And so the type of person is a humble person. A humble person. And then you can be a part of the party. Brother stood out there cocky and mad and angry. Didn't want to go in. Arms crossed, just ticked off. And then he just gets pushed away and away and away and he's too prideful and doesn't want to go in. The extended hand of the Father is there. Come in. And you celebrate with us. Got the table set. We've got a meal prepared for you. This great illustration that we just keep seeing, don't we, in our series through the kingdom of God, upside down kingdom. It's this illustration of the table, of the feast, of the banquet, of the party. And everybody's invited into this banquet. Everybody's welcome to this feast. And so what an appropriate way for us to close out today by partaking of communion together. We do this every month, the first of the month, as we partake of communion. But I thought, how beautiful is it today that as we talk about these parties, that we have a party in the unity that we share as people of different backgrounds, but we all are united in our need for the cross. We're all united in the, the body of Jesus nailed to the cross and the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so we're going to gather as family around this proverbial table as we partake of communion together. And the table represents so many things, doesn't it? It represents hospitality. You're welcomed in. It, it represents unity that we're all one in this thing together. It represents, I, I want to meet your needs and God has met our needs in Jesus. It represents we're, we're, we're on a mission, we're family, we're getting, getting nourished so we can go back out and keep doing this thing together. And so we're going to invite you, if you're a Christian, to come partake of, of communion in just a second. If you're not a Christian, here's what I'll say. If you're not a Christian, you never humbled yourself and received the gift of God. Maybe today, an appropriate way for you to take that step for the very first time and give your life to Jesus and enter into the family is to come and partake of communion. Communion is reserved for those people who are followers of Jesus. So maybe your physical step of that today is just to say, I'm coming for the first time and I'm partaking of communion because it's reflective of what's happened in my heart right now that I'm receiving the gift of Jesus' death for my sin. Can we pray? Father, we thank you so much for this amazing text, Scripture, Lord. How beautiful is it that you would come and, and you would find us, you would search diligently for us. You would tear the house apart for us. God, how beautiful is it that you would throw a party, so to speak. You would welcome into your great and glorious kingdom people who were far from you or people who were close and that they, they did the right things but their hearts were far from you. Wherever we find ourselves on that spectrum, God, we sit before you right now as people who are just needy of your grace. 
So God, I pray that you would humble us in this room this morning. We lean on you, Lord. Thank you that you set the table before us. We commit this time to you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.